Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Let's return to the topic of the thing self in the Buddha's teachings. We're convinced that there is a me and that it is substantial. Some of us call it a soul, some of us think it is eternal. Some of us think it is fixed until death removes it. Some of us call it the authentic self and attribute special qualities to it. The thing self is what the teachings of impermanence, suffering, and non-self seek to question as their primary function. These teachings ask us to view or recognize the world wherever we look as in a state of flux, contingent, ever-changing, and unreliable. They challenge us to point to anything at all fixed or substantial that we might call a self. They ask us to become keenly aware of the suffering that collects around the thing-self. First, the fear we experience when we question its existence, but also the anxiety and distress that comes when we hang on to it. I just gave a long series of talks on the Satipatthana during the last months on this podcast. The Satipatthana, recollection attending, is the central contemplative practice of Buddhism and is largely concerned with dispelling the presumption of a thing-self. Let me summarize the most relevant points and in fact illustrate its method in terms of the Quizzlevanian analogy I presented a couple of weeks ago. Recall that we started with the presumption that Quizzlevania exists in a substantial way. It is really real. This is called examining Quizzlevania externally. We see that it immediately leads to various narratives about Quizzlevania, it is an access of evil, a thorn in the side of bumble land, etc. Actually, we cannot point to anything directly that is in fact Quizzlevania. Instead, we can examine Quizzlevania internally. That is, look at the various points of evidence for the existence of Quizzlevania. Remember, we took an excursion to a remote border the limit of Quizzlevania's body, and found a self-important sign for the international Quizzlevanian border. But we're disappointed that the sign was so un unconvincing. We recognized its impermanence. It was about to fall over and could easily be moved a few yards into Bumbleland territory. Who would be the wiser? Another way we mentioned to examine Quizzlevania internally is to examine some element of its breath. A farmer milking his cow. Certainly, this is evidence not only of Quizzlevania, 
but also of the booming Quisylvanian economy, we're surprised to discover that neither of these factors constitutes convincing evidence for the existence of Quisylvania. Why? Because these points of evidence, the border sign and the farmer milking his cow, would be just the way they are when left to themselves whether or not Quisylvania was assumed to exist. By the same token, our moving posture, breath, state of mind, manifest and interoperate with other factors independently of the truth value of therefore I am, independently of whether we reify the self. This method of analysis is described clearly in the continually repeated refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta, which goes like this. In this way, he abides examining the body in the body internally, or he abides examining the body in the body externally, or he abides examining the body in the body both internally and externally. This puts Quisylvania and its evidence side by side. Or else he abides examining in the body its nature of arising, or he abides examining in the body its nature of vanishing, or he abides examining in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. This is noticing the insubstantiality of the evidence the falling over signpost, through its impermanence. Or else recollection that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and recollection. This is a reference to the concept self, an index we are safe to hang on to for cognitive purposes as long as we don't reify it. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides examining the body in the body. Once we reify or take something as substantially existent, including Quisylvania, but especially our thing-self, we tend to cling to it, and that gets us into trouble. We turn the thing-self into an ego-self along with our sense of lack. The Satipatthana Sutta contains a long list of exercises of just this nature that propose points of evidence for the thing-self, breath, bodily decay, composition of the body, mental states, and so on, generally through the intermediate thing-body, or thing-mind. But it also employs a second method of challenging the existence of the thing-self. This is to trace the cognitive processes step-by-step involved in constructing the presumption of existence in the first place, beginning with raw sense data and working through intermediate stages of cognition feeling, perception, inference, and so on. We can catch the mind in the act of constructing the substantial things of the world 
as we experience them and convincing us they are real. This is the primary purpose of the fourth Satipatthana, examination of phenomena. I call this method described in the Satipatthana refrain internal analysis. It asks not what is true out there, that would be external analysis, and would just lead to proliferation of narratives about the thing self or about Quisildania. But rather it asks how we think we know what is true out there. It questions our evidence for what we presume and questions the reliability of inference or reasoning that we apply to reach the presumptions we are convinced are true. As the Buddha tells us, Cognizance is a magic show, a juggler's trick entire. Accordingly, we learn to deconstruct what we have cognitively constructed. We discover that the thing-self is empty of substantial existence and discover that a lot of other things are also empty in the process. All we are left with is the concept-self, sometimes useful but also empty. But still, we are not rid of the thing-self until non-self is internalized as a matter of continual perception. So, we are pursuing two stories, you'll recall. One is the story of the Buddhist self, what we ultimately want to get rid of. The other is the story of the Western self, which has a traceable history of evolution and is generally seen in a more positive light. The two stories are about to intersect in our discussion of these topics. Last week, we arrived at the modern notion of the true or authentic self, as originally defined in psychoanalysis, but which seems to be the dominant and most characteristic modern conception of self in popular culture. It is presented not as something to get rid of, but as something that, as a matter of spiritual attainment or psychological well-being, we learn to discover, to develop, and then to express to the world. We have seen that the authentic self seems to have precedence in an historical development culminating in European Romanticism. By way of example, I googled discovering true self and came across a fashion website, and many similar results, which the listener can also easily bring up and examine. This site tells us, Do you want to be happy? Of course you do. Everybody does. The thing is, you can't exactly be happy when all you do is care about what makes everyone else happy, not you. You need to know who you are, what you enjoy, and what is truly valuable to you. Once you know who you are, it's also important to let it show. Be yourself, act like yourself, and dress like yourself. And don't tell me it's somehow bad or not spiritual to care how you look like. It's not. 
Fashion can be a great way of communication and self-expression. Here the authentic self, who you truly are, is combined with the modern trend of positive thinking. Individualism, or the prioritizing of the self over society, is apparent in not caring about what makes everyone else happy. It's about you. European Romanticism is apparent in this text, in self-expression and letting it show. The scope of assets that constitute the authentic self, who you are, is extended to desires and values, notably allowing greed to enter the mix. The function of this passage seems to be to encourage a kind of self-obsession with fashion and for commercial purposes. Interesting is the end of this passage which offers an excuse for itself. The idea persists in some streams of thinking in the modern world that spiritual development should take the form of selflessness or humility. This is certainly the case in church religions, including Protestant Christianity, which, though contributing to the authentic model in its earliest manifestations, has since had its own course of evolution and differentiation. What is telling in this passage is the appeal to being spiritually based in discovery and expression of the authentic self. It's hardly surprising that the authentic self model plays a strong role in modern commercial advertising. If consumerism is the dominant religion in these modern times, as David Loy suggests, our modern solution to our lack, what is a better way to proselytize than to promote the self-discovery of intrinsic needs and self-expression through purchasing, thereby assuring spiritual bliss? Notice that Models in modern advertisements rarely are just happy. They are blissful, spiritually blissful. My impression is that the authentic self is not so pronounced in traditional church religions, though I don't really know, but quite common in New Age or in association with the idea of being spiritual but not religious. It was certainly a prominent way of thinking in the counterculture movements of the 60s. I remember because I was there. In contrast to the socially oppressive, regimented, square establishment culture, the suits. And the authentic self seems to be fundamental in self-help and psychotherapy as well. It is perhaps around the 60s that the authentic self entered into the modern understanding of Buddhism. Here is an example of this from a modern meditation teacher. Finding your authentic self involves learning who you truly are. Your authentic self is the real you, the person you are truly meant to be. Your authentic self is the person you are at the core, the person you can be if nothing holds you back. 
with this meditation, we will go deep and reach your authentic self. There are many, many teachers of Buddhism who teach along these lines. What is going on here? Tenisaro Bhikkhu, a very eminent American monk, in reference to this model's origins in European Romanticism, writes, The influence of Romanticism on modern Buddhism has penetrated through the surface and into the bone, shaping not only isolated concepts, but also the underlying structures of thought from which those concepts take their meaning. In other words, Romanticism has provided the framework into which Buddhist concepts have been placed, reshaping those concepts towards romantic ends. As he aptly points out, the modern process of assimilating Buddhism to Western ways of thinking had a well-documented precedent in 1st to 4th century China, where Taoism provided the cultural matrix in which Buddhist concepts were placed until Buddhism managed to get back on course. Can the modern authentic self be reconciled with the Buddhist non-self? A few years ago, I gave a talk in Austin to some seminary students who wanted to learn about Buddhism. After the talk and after the Q&A that followed, one of the students approached me and confided in me that he had, in his younger days, as a spiritual explorer, visited a number of Buddhist meditation and discussion groups that are common in the West, and that he was disappointed. The problem was, he said, that people seem so self-absorbed. This I took to mean, in contrast to the traditional church religion that he planned to ordain into. Somewhat awkwardly, I had to agree. Of course, I know this is not true across the board. Certainly not at all true in ethnic Buddhist communities. But those are not the ones that he visited. It is also not true in all Western Buddhist communities. But I had to agree that it was characteristic of the Western communities. I could think of various reasons for this. The demographics of Western Buddhist communities, the relative inexperience of the teachers and leaders, the lack of grounding in tradition, or in devotional or religious practices. But the heart of it, I suggested, was the authentic self and the individualism that goes with it. Next week, I want to talk about this individualism thing, what it is and why it is misguided, both from a Buddhist perspective and from the perspective of the modern understanding of individual and social cognition. <laughs>